0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Peace. We yearn for it. We pray for it, for peace of mind, peace within our marriages and families, peace in our communities, and world peace. Today's guest is devoting his career to the pursuit of peace, both as study and as practice. Welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem Series on Ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and it's my pleasure to welcome Daniel Roth to the show today to share his vital work and his new book, Third Party Peacemakers in Judaism Text, Theory, and Practice. Rabbi Dr. Daniel Roth is the director of Mosaica, the Religious Peace Initiative, which engages religious leaders in mediation, conflict resolution, and religious peace building. Daniel Roth, Welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you.
1: Why is it so difficult to achieve peace in our own families, in our own neighborhoods, and most especially between ethnic groups and countries?
0: So one of the key arguments that I try to lay out in the book is that what's missing often in trying to achieve peace either a peaceful agreement or peaceful relationships is not always what the agreement should look like. It's who can actually connect the two parties that are in conflict. And hence the title is third party peacemakers, which is who are the people that are connected deeply in trust with the different parties in conflict that can gain their trust in order to bring about a, a a resolution to the conflict and in ethno national or religious conflicts. It becomes so much trickier because it's not just a professional mediator that comes in and with a rational problem solving approach says we can solve this because this is an issue of identity. You don't just solve identity, but if you have the mediator with the right identity in the sense that they are, identified with the different parties in conflict, and they have that trust, um, and they have that that honor, that respect, then you can um, bring about often the ability to prevent crisis situations and violent conflict, and sometimes even to bring about peace.
1: Uh, Like all fields of studies, the field of peace studies has its own language. So maybe we should spend a moment on that. What's the difference between conflict resolution and conflict transformation?
0: So the problem with the language in the, in the study of conflict resolution is that people have different definitions. There is a conflict over if, what's conflict resolution versus conflict transformation. But in, my, in the context of my book, I split between conflict resolution which means resolving the material, tangible, scarcity of resource aspects of the conflict? Did you bring the two parties to a compromise agreement that resolves the structural parts of the conflict? Versus conflict transformation, or I also like to use the language reconciliation, which is did you heal the relationship? Do they hate each other? Are they going to have the bandwidth of emotional energy and trust to want to fulfill and uphold the uh, the agreed upon um, compromise, which was resolved through the conflict resolution process? So to my, to in my in my book, in my research, in my writing, and my understanding of Jewish text in particular, is that there's really a split of You know, did we reconcile and transform the conflict of how we see each other? We see conflict. Um, And on the other hand, did we resolve the actual uh, tangible aspects of the conflict? And so many of the stories and legends just focus on conflict transformation. As if that's all that matters. Did you transform the relationship, the perceptions, build trust? Once you did, resolving the conflict becomes really small. And 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 alternatively, when there's such great deep hatred, um, and lack of trust, the simplest conflicts that need could be resolved become impossible.
1: So you examined in your research uh, Jewish texts starting from the Hebrew Bible and taking it through Jewish history. Uh, and who emerged from your research as your favorite peacemaker?
0: So I want to just clarify, I actually don't touch upon um, biblical characters as third party peacemakers. I do have a chapter where I talk about Aaron the high priest, the older brother of Moses, as the paradigmatic peacemaker. But that's really only comes into expression in rabbinic text. In the Bible, we don't really meet Aaron as a a peacemaker. But in the rabbinic um, legend, literature, um, he becomes really the ideal peacemaker. And he uh, is constantly focused on transforming the conflict, much less on resolving the conflict. Um, but even though within rabbinic Judaism, he's sort of like the, uh, you asked who is the, who's my favorite. So I guess he should be my favorite. Um, but the truth is the all time, uh, favorite, uh, character in my book is the Chida, Rav Chaim David Alevi Azulay, um, who is not so well known to the larger public, um, I think he's in the top 100 rabbis of all time. I want to drive through the book to move him into the top 10 most influential beloved rabbis. And he shares his, um, he lives in the 18th century in the land of Israel, but he travels throughout Europe uh, raising money for the little Jewish community in Hebron. But he's like a rock star when he shows up to these communities and everyone wants to connect to him. And he constantly gets involved with people's conflicts and community conflicts. And what's so uh, amazing about him and why I love him um, and I really enjoyed writing about seven case studies of his in in the book is because he preserved a personal diary Um, of his innermost thoughts that I don't think he really planned on publishing. And in that diary, you really get the um, behind the scenes of one of the greatest thinkers um, and mediators and peacemakers and seeing how they're, how things are working, not working, their frustration, their, 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 their pride when they succeed. Um, so without a doubt, the Chida, which is in the chapter about rabbis as uh, third party peacemakers is, is, for sure my, uh, my hero, my favorite hero of all the book.
1: So it's both because of his successes, but also because you had a chance to see his process, his internal process.
0: It's the internal process. It's the the level of detail that he's sharing. That he's um, he's struggling with. How do I want to attack this? It's the amount of energy that he puts in. Sometimes eight months just to focus on these conflicts, um, and I don't know of a greater description with such um, beautiful detail from the vantage point of the mediator that could be found anywhere else in rabbinic literature. And he's just a very colorful character. <laughs> so, and, and that he's not afraid to share when he fails, uh, which there's so much that can be learned from um, the failure of third-party peacemakers in order to learn how, how not to try to do
1: that at home. <laughs> right, that's, that's very wise. We, we tend to underestimate how much one can learn from failure, even though it's not fun. Uh, it's more fun to learn from success, uh, but um, you compare in the book. You compare uh, many of the notions and approaches of Jewish traditional peacemaking to the Arab Sulha model. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, but tell tell us about that model. How does it work?
0: So, <clears throat> Jewish texts, um, Jewish history. These are pre-modern um, legends, historical accounts of how Jews would um, would have peacemaking processes within their community, between communities. And when someone looking at these processes um, is looking at them through a kind of a Western, modern, um, rational approach, they seem kind of far-fetched and, and, um, almost, uh, hard to relate to. Um, you know, we mentioned Aaron as the paradigmatic peacemaker, who's a well-respected insider meeting with each side separately and telling the other one that the other one wants to make peace until they hug and they kiss and they, and they reconcile. But that's very different than Western modern mediation process, which end with a, with a official kind of agreement that's signed and, um and that there was a you know a rational problem solving approach. When you look at other non Western pre modern methods of peacemaking, such as the Sulcha model, the Arab model of peacemaking, which has been the most researched of non Western models, you all of a sudden realize that these Jewish models are basically the Jewish approach of Sulha. In the Sulcha process you have a well respected insider, the elder, the jaha—it's often not just one. It's a delegation of individuals who know the grandparents and the grandchildren um, of those that are in conflict. They're not going anywhere. They're not coming in for you know a three-hour session. And they either mediated or didn't mediate. They're part of the community. They are, they are um, deeply connected. They know and their whole insiderness is what gives them credibility, not their professionalism in, in the in the in the modern western context. So their ability also to not only resolve the conflict but try to reconcile the sides so they can live in community again one with the other is a core component that's absent. For most Western mediation processes, where at best at the end, after they sign the contract, they shake hands. Here, it's like, did they have coffee? Did they they end up having a meal together? Are the kids playing again together? Have they reconciled? And that part, which is so core to Jewish peacemaking, which is beyond, as we said, the conflict resolution, the conflict transformation, is very prevalent within non-Western models, and in particular, uh, the sulcha model.
1: And uh, that's also different often than uh, what we think of in Western marriage counseling or couples counseling, that uh, the, the therapist or counselor should be neutral. Uh, it's very different than being a well-respected insider. It's uh, it, uh, Neither one is better or worse. It's just what suits, but it is quite different
0: absolutely i mean there's so much that the um sulha model the non-western models can learn from modern approaches to uh conflict resolution as the broadest sense and vice versa and especially you know when you're when we're engaging in um non Western or more traditional communities, whether it be the Arab community, sometimes the ultra-Orthodox community, but other communities where there is um, a tightly knit sense of identity, these non-Western approaches are really, really, really important. And the Western, more psychological, rational approaches often fall short. Um, So you have to know which context is the right one to apply these approaches. But I think that there's so much wisdom that's often been passed over and <clears throat> excuse me and not um, um, and not prevalent within what's often taught within conflict resolution studies today that's why it's so important to kind of look back at these ancient wisdoms and these legends and these traditions um, uh, and to and to see what was the wisdom of how people re- resolving conflicts for thousands of years and what can be learned for from those for today as well
1: now, uh, we talked about f- families or couples, and we talked about countries or ethnic groups. But in between, on a very everyday level, schools are often places of terrible conflict. Uh, there's not only bullying and fights, but today we see stabbings and shootings. You have an innovative program, the Pardes Rode Shalom Schools Program for middle schoolers. Tell us a little about that. How does that work?
0: So for about um, seven years or so, we ran a, uh, a program that was looking to integrate Jewish uh, text and Jewish values with contemporary conflict resolution education. And the idea was, is that if you want mediation conflict resolution to not just be a one hour a week course um but you want to infuse it into the whole dna of a community and a school is a community then it has to be part of the language the mindset the tool uh the tools of everyone from the head of school to the teachers to the parent body and then to the seventh, eighth graders and their and their teachers, et cetera, and that has to be holistic approach that they're learning in Judaic studies to uh, to what they're doing in English class and and physical education. So that was a, an approach that um, that was kind of taking some of the the, the text and the and the lens um, that's set forth in the book and putting it into practice within the context of of the school of the school community. Um, And it was important to me in this book, which is an academic book, um, to not only look at uh, the historical and the textual and the theoretical aspect, but also to give some of the examples of how these texts have played out in practice um, in actually working to prevent conflict and build a culture of conflict resolution, such as within the school uh, as within the school context. Um, that program is not continuing as it was right now. You can, if people are interested, it's actually called Makhlokit matters, which is how to, uh, how to teach young people to be peacemakers by engaging in, and knowing how to engage in strong disagreements, whether it be with their peers over political, um, and identity types of conflicts.
1: Oh, there's a, a new book out by Abby Stern and uh, a co-author's name I don't remember uh, about how to argue around the table, how to mm-hmm. how to discuss very contentious issues. So, what did you find how, when you were doing it? What was what was the impact uh, that you could tell
0: in the school context? Yes, or in general.
1: In the school context, did, did the, you, you did it for seven years. Do you have an impression <laughs> of how, how it affected the children or the culture? Or
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have the data in front of me of exactly how, how it impacted. It's often sometimes hard to measure these things. But I think that the, the, the reinforcing, and this is, I think, really important, is, you know, it's not just about did a kid get the skills you know, you take a certain amount of hours and you practice it, but it's really about having it become part of their identity. Um, and part of their, uh, and that's a core part of what the Jewish text puts an emphasis on. It's not, you know, how to separate people from the problem. It's about how, what kind of person are you and to what extent are you a student of Aaron or not a student of Aaron? And what does that mean? Um, so having that be part of, um, especially a middle schooler's identity and their teachers and their parents, I think had an incredible um, impact. And I'm very happy that it, as I said, it's continuing on with a slightly different branding of around how to disagree, um, which is a core component, of course, of, uh, of, of, of peacemaking.
1: Is, are there any uh, demographic characteristics you've noticed of successful third-party peacemakers? Are they more likely to be male or female, young or old, a me- member of one group or another? What, what's your impression? Does d- demography matter, or is it something else that makes for a good peacemaker?
0: So I, I would... I would... Mm phrase it a slightly differently and talk about does identity of the peacemaker matter? Um, because the, cause I think that's a key, a key, a key ingredient. Um, you asked about the gender and the age, you know, who, who is this peacemaker? And part of what you see throughout the book is that often the identity of the third party was 50% of their chance of succeeding or not succeeding. If they are the well-respected, honest, uh, trusted insider that has the trust, or they as a delegation—it's not always one person; it's often a group of people um, that were that were that were working together. Their chance of success um, are much higher. Not always, but their chance are much higher in today's conflict because I deal with um, the most difficult conflicts in the Middle East. Um, with, between Israelis and Palestinians, it, within be, within the Middle East in, in, at large, often working where it's most extreme and most difficult. So the question that we're always going to ask is, who is influential within this context and who can be worked with? And how many phone calls away from one extreme to the other extreme does it take in order to, to mediate the conflict? So it's not always that these mediators, and that, same methodology, I'll emphasize, is exactly what comes out in the book. And that's how Jewish peacemaking or not, or, or traditional peacemaking works, which is that I'm connected to this side, you're connected a bit more to that other side. So our personal trust and um, identity are the key factor in being able to bring the parties that we're connected to that are in conflict to try to come to a nonviolent solution and ultimately towards peace. So in certain contexts, um, unfortunately <laughs> the leaders of extreme religious groups today in the Middle East are male and uh, are going to be more hesitant about having, um, you know, a woman peacemaker come and, and, uh, and try to go back and forth between the sides In other contexts. I find a lot in our, in, in our work within community conflict resolution in Israel. Um, that there often will be that the key player is a strong woman community leader that's connected. Um, So you have to, it's very, very context oriented. It's less about how professional somebody is and it's more about who's connected has the trust of the parties that can then help transform the dynamics.
1: Uh, Finally, Daniel, How can your approaches to reducing hostility, conflict, even suspicion, I think, seems to be part of it, how can that that be applied within divisive and divided societies, such as the United States today and Israel today? What what are your ideas about applying your approaches?
0: So as you, 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 you mentioned both within Israel and the United States, is it? And I've, yes. and I've take, touched upon this already. Is, <laughs> that, is it so many of the world's conflicts more and more are becoming around identity conflicts and this, um, frustration that they just can't be resolved easily, um, because you're dealing with people's identity and people don't want to compromise on their identity. So then what do you do? <clears throat> so the two tips that i like to uh that i like to share both in my practice and uh throughout the book is one um everybody can serve within their own context as an insider mediator an insider mediator is the theme of the book which is i'm not a professional mediator i am not you know that's not what i do all day long but i have a friend who has a friend who is on one side of a conflict and you have a friend who has a friend who's on the other side of the conflict and whether they see, you know, some of the key identity political issues very differently um, or it'd be something a little bit of a simpler nature of a conflict. Um, the key thing is, is this sense of community of connectedness that if I'm able to serve as a channel to understand convey messages and have their trust, that's a key component to being able to uh, respond to the growing polarization that's happening both within U.S. society and within Israel. So you need more insiders that are one, two, three, even sometimes more phone calls of trust from one side of an identity group to another side of an identity group. When there is nobody that is bridging, that is connected to different sides within a couple of phone calls, you will find yourselves towards escalation of conflict and a a deeper abyss. The second tip is, is that these people that want to serve as insider mediators, as third party peacemakers have to work really hard to be aware of their own identity. Um, and, their own narrative and work very, very hard to understand the conflicting interpretations of reality and the conflicting interpretations of, of the narratives. Without that, the ability to try to mediate <laughs> and connect uh, just simply won't get started. won't get, won't get off the ground. So those are the two tips to make sure you have friends that, really see the world differently than you and that they have friends that are even more extreme and that you work really, really hard to read contradictory news, to read understand different interpretations of reality. And I think those are two of the wisdom pieces that come from the book in terms of how Jews served as, as mediators, as insiders, and as third-party peacemakers.
1: Absolutely. Those are really wise observations and recommendations. Uh, your book, The Third, Third Party Peacemakers in Judaism, is an important addition to the growing literature on religion and peacemaking. It's uh, uh, the most vital uh, area that we ha- confront today. The cause of peace needs all the help it can get. So thanks very much for working for peace and for talking with us today.
0: Thank you very much.
1: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.